This is Car Expert. The most important takeaway from this was the fact that electric cars set their new record market share. The C5X, it does seem like something that kind of doesn't fit into any one category. I think it's a really, really cool spec. Uh, And if I were buying a Tiguan Allspace, it would be the one I think I'd buy. G'day to you, James Wong. Hello, Mandy. And hello, William Stockford. Hello, Mandy. Have you guys ever been to Motor Classica before? No, and I want to. Oh, you're missing out. Uh, this show, I think it's the first show it's had since pre-COVID. Yeah, it's I think the Royal, it is, yeah. yeah. the Royal Exhibition Building in uh, Melbourne, Will. It's, it's this huge, big, old, vintage-style building with massive ceilings and double-storey sort of floors. Um, the most prestige cars in Australia. You, you're going from, I think the earliest one there was like 1896 Whoa. to like brand-new supercars um so a huge huge mix of cars you've got some aussie cars in there like you know the four gts and lots of european cars that they paid homage to ferrari this year um so there was testarossas there was an f40 there just yeah, it's like it's like a scaled down melbourne version of concourse d'elegance and like you said mandy the melbourne exhibition building is just a stunning bit of history and architecture that um, we're so lucky to have in Melbourne. Um, I've been mm. lucky to go to Motor Classica a couple of times, including um, a Mercedes-Benz launch party. So when everything's all lit up and everyone's all dressed uh-huh. nice, it's, it's it's quite the spectacle. So um, I unfortunately didn't get to go over the weekend, but um, it's really good to see events like this coming back in full swing mm. um, pa- post-COVID era, um, yes. given that for the longest time we weren't sure if we we're going to start seeing these things again. But um, yeah, I've seen some social media posts and the like um, from the grounds and there seems to be so much going on there like even to the point where BMW is present has presented the XM the yeah. M2 and a couple other cars that are almost like global debuts almost because like you have, haven't seen them yet so um, yeah it's 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 super cool yeah the XM was on show for the entire public it was like that greenish sort of color with gold. Mm. Uh, what um, did you think the, of it? Uh, I don't know. I it has a big presence to it. Mm. Interesting design. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, but the M2 was hidden away in a in a trailer, and you had no idea it was in there. It was open to VIPs, oh. um, so it wasn't really open to just the standard public. I think you had to have media pass and maybe a different other pass as well to get in. But it was very well hidden. You had to hand in your phone, so you couldn't share photos of it. Um, so yeah, yeah I don't think it's even been officially revealed yet. No, yeah, no, it hasn't. It's no, I mean, it's there. There's yeah. been leaked yeah. photos, so I <laughs> totally get why they were confiscating phones. Yeah, I know. So it was that that pale blue um, into the one that we saw in the leaked photos, and yeah. I'm going to say it, it looks better in person. Um, I still don't know whether I like it though. It's it's pretty chunky. I know Yam cars can be you know with a flared sort of guard look to them. Um, I was just saying to Jawa before we hit record, the size of it is. Just as big as a three series now. It's not a small car anymore. No, no. Everything, everything just kind of grows and then they kind yeah. of just slot stuff in underneath. Because, uh, you know, the three series got to a point where it had grown enough that they slotted in the, the one series underneath and, and so on and so forth. So it's just the way yes. it goes. But that's, I'm very keen to see that in person because mm. they, I really, I feel for uh, automakers when their stuff gets leaked in really crappy low-res photos or patent filings or or Chinese Department of Ministry and Information Technology filings where the cars could not look worse if they were staged to look worse. And all these (laughs) designers, you know, have been, you know, waiting for this big reveal so they can say, oh, look how great our car looks. And then there's just some awful photo of it leaked. So um, I do feel for BMW's designers in that in that one instance. But, yeah, I'm reserving judgment until I see it in person because I, I <laughs> talk smack about BMW design and the stuff ends up growing on me. So <laughs> I don't know about that XM, but, you know, we'll see. Yeah. Let's talk about the biggest car news of the week with Jack Quick. G'day, Jack. Hey there, Mandy. How are you? Well, thank you. This week we start off with the 2023 Maserati Gran Turismo being revealed. It sort of looks a little bit similar to the previous generation, right? 
Yes, that's exactly right, Mandy. So this new generation uh, Maserati Gran Turismo um, replaces the, mo- the 15-year-old model. So it's been wow. 15 years roughly since we've seen the previous gen, the now defunct one. But this is the new generation Gran Turismo, and it's going to be available in two different versions um, within the Tuno uh, V6. I'm, get- I'm probably butchering the Italian name, the Tuno. Get the Crawfism in there. Yeah, well done. Um, Oh, Tony in. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also going to be, uh, there's also an all electric version, which sounds freaking crazy. So this uh, brand new, a uh, new generation should say, uh, Gran Turismo joins a new Gricale SUV, as well as MC20 supercar in the latest offerings that Maserati has. And um, the, the new Gran Turismo is expected to come to Australia in the second half of next year um, with both the petrol and all-electric versions locked in. Um, so I'm just going to go through a little bit of a spec br- a rundown now. So the entry-level Modena is powered by the same 3-litre twin-turbo V6 as the MC20 supercar, but it produces 365 kilowatts of power and 600 newton metres of torque. It's mated to an 8-speed an automatic and it's also all-wheel drive. I found this a really weird point. Every single variant of the new Gran Turismo is all-wheel drive, so you won't be able to do any more rear-wheel drive skids or burnouts like you might see in, like, Oakley, for example, if you're familiar with Melbourne or <laughs> so it's be all-wheel drive skids from now on. Um, taking up to the top-of-the-range petrol model called the Trofeo, um, it has the same engine, but it bumps power and torque up to 410 kilowatts and 650 newton metres. But the the big news is this one, the Fulgore, which is the electric version. It has three electric motors um, with a total system output of 560 kilowatts with um, 600, 610 on an overboost function, as well as 1,350 newton metres of torque, which is insane. Plenty. And, um, it also comes with uh, all-wheel drive and torque vectoring too with the three motors. It can tell, talk to each other and send torque where it needs to to get it happening as fast as it can. And um, this uh, Ford Gordé model has a a 92.5 kilowatt hour battery pack as well as an 800 volt electrical architecture. All of this is kind of um, Formula E inspired. So it's going to be super crazy and I really look forward to it. But um, as you mentioned at the start, Mandy, this um, design for me and I'm guessing for you guys too is more evolutionary than revolutionary. Like Mm. a lot of things look very similar to me. Um, but I have to say I quite like it. But um, a few more things apart from just the the no all-wheel drive, you no longer get the Ferrari V8 engine. So there's a few things that you're kind of sacrificing with this new generation. But um, I want to know, guys, what do you think? It looks beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely stunning. Maserati's new kind of front design language, I'm still kind of warming to because I, I love the old Gran Turismo. Oh, my God. I just find so beautiful. The other day I saw one parked in front of the Maserati dealership near our office. I'm just like walking past it, taking photos. I'm like, this is so beautiful. They're kind of this, the big vertically oriented headlights of all the new Maseratis. It hasn't haven't grown on me yet, but I love how evolutionary the design language is because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yes. Um, yeah, I agree. I think even though it's a, an evolutionary step forward, I think it um, refines the the very iconic design of the previous generation. It looks all very clean. The specs are awesome. It's it's cool to see that um, Maserati and the Stellantis Group in general are doing have this theme where they're doing electrification, but basing it off their their core models. So they're not doing standalone wildly designed stuff. They, they'll give you the option of various model lines. And within those model lines, you can get petrol, electric, hybrid, obviously, depending on where you're going. The, the Folgoro with its big numbers and quick acceleration times is pretty wild. And it'll be really interesting to see that in practice. I'm just amazed that they've listed the top speed as 320 kilometers an hour. I'd love to know how far you can actually get going full tilt with that thing and how fast it actually <laughs> take you to get to that top speed so really impressive numbers i think it looks beautiful um and just really keen to see more hopefully maybe one day even get a steer of it so um yeah props to maserati 
Mm, for sure. Uh, Tesla is temporarily losing functions by removing sensors. Why? I know, right? <laughs> yeah, so Elon Musk is kind of just doing some Elon Musk things, in my opinion. <laughs> um, so Tesla, um, has, as you would probably know, has, has already removed the radar um, from the majority from its vehicles. It's now removing um, ultrasonic sensors, planning to, which in other words are like parking sensors. Um, so Tesla's going to cease production of the Model 3 and Model Y um, with ultrasonic sensors in November this year. So it's coming sooner than you think. And then uh, with Model S and Model X, which can't, currently aren't um, offered in Australia, um, we're going to be losing them in 2023. The reason for this is Tesla is moving to camera only where um, other companies have kind of built uh, a number of things built around this. So there's cameras and sensors and radar and even LIDAR just to kind of have a full spectrum of um, assist technologies and not just relying on the one, which is cameras. And that's what Elon Musk, Elon Musk is just persisting with and saying, you don't need the rest, you just need cameras, which I'm going to be interested to see what happens. But getting to the point um, where you're going to be losing some features, uh, for a period of time, uh, these Teslas that are going to be delivered without the ultrasonic sensors will, um, will be delivered that are features that are limited or inactive. Um, these features include the summon and smart uh, smart summon uh, functions, as well as the park assist and auto park uh, functions. Now, Tesla says that these features are going to be coming back eventually via an over-the-air update. Um, but for a while, you're not going to be able to have these functions, which I don't know if that's really good enough. In my, <laughs> from my understanding, is you can't. We're seeing that they're getting rid of the, the ultrasonic sensor; they just want the cameras. So they're trying to double down on their software, from my understanding, and just calibrate. And they say cameras is all you really need, and they're getting rid of the trimming the fat. Is I'm guessing is what my understanding is. But I feel like it's just a little bit too much meat getting rid of because my my partner Lockie were chatting about this uh, story and he always says uh, he works in IT and he says you always need redundancies so like if for example I'm going to use kind of like a, a hard drive that you back up your your photos to say you have your photos on your your laptop and then your hard drives gets corrupted at least you have a backup that your photos are on. If you think of this in terms of cars with the cameras and all of the other uh, sensors, LiDAR, radar, if you're just relying on cameras and the cameras fail, what happens then? Does the car have, everything is so reliant on these cameras. What, what happens in that instance? That's what I really want to know. And I kind of hope that Tesla's not digging itself a hole where it relies, I know that um, Elon Musk probably feels very strongly about this and, and doesn't expect this to be a, a situation that actually happens. But I'm just kind of thinking in the back of my head, like what if, like just redundancies, you just need like a backup just in case something breaks. But, um, and, and Mandy, it's not even encouraging people to upgrade because Tesla's effectively saying, hey, we're going to be producing some cars that are not going to have these features active. And then eventually we're going to roll it out. But they haven't given any clear timeline as to for how long these vehicles are going to be missing these functions. And, you know, things like smart and smart summon, look, I don't, uh, sorry, summon and smart summon, I don't know how often the typical Tesla owner uses those features, but things like Park Assist, when pretty much every car on sale today has got parking sensors and you're basically mm -hmm. saying to owners or buyers rather of Tesla vehicles, hey, you're not going to have parking sensors. We'll bring them back eventually. Like, to me... Wow, that's a good Harley Davidson, isn't it? Oh, my God. That was not a Tesla that drove past. <laughs> <laughs> that was very loud. Um, but, um, yeah, you, you're effectively just telling uh, buyers that, hey, you, you won't have access to a pretty standard feature because we think that we know better and we think our cameras are going to be great. Why wouldn't they wait until the cameras were ready to support all of these features and then get rid of the sensors. That to me strikes me as a bit of a cost-cutting move. Like we're, we're getting rid of the features early, inconveniencing people. What's the reason? Is it to save costs? Mm. Do you agree with Will, Joe? 
Hundred percent. This is this is just a cost-cutting exercise cloaked in stupid reasoning. Like I think it's been pretty well. It's been pretty well documented. You know, we've all been covering the industry for a little while now, and so many companies will use a more basic camera-based safety assist system as the baseline, and then it's further improved with radar and lidar sensors as you go further up the range. Um, camera sensors, in my own experience, can be very quickly impacted by changes in light, weather, all that kind of thing, vision impaired. They don't sense distance as well. And, you know, I couldn't tell you the amount of times that I've had uh, a car parked outside overnight in winter and then, it, you know, the, cat, the windscreen gets frosted over and you start up the car and for 10, 15 minutes, it's like you can't use any of the safety assist functions, mm-hmm. which is where a radar or a LiDAR would come in as a, as a fail-safe. So, you know, I... This is the issue I have with Tesla and, you know, we're very quick to jump on other manufacturers for dropping features and all this kind of thing due to component shortages and whatever, but at least there's some sort of reasoning given they're not trying to pretend like this is going to be some massive improvement that they're working on that you can't access yet and also they're going to be changing the pricing when they're taking out all these sensors. The sensors cost money too, so are they going to offer thousands of dollars worth of savings? I doubt it. And you know, people who are, have been ordering Teslas for the last few months, imagine if you placed an order a month ago expecting a certain level of specification and then to find out that your car is being built from November or December onwards and losing all these features. So I just think that, you know, these things happen. We're in a, we're in a weird time where some manufacturers are having to make changes to production that wouldn't necessarily be favorable in terms of features and things like that. But then there's also a level of transparency that you have to have with your customers and your followers. And I think that um, Elon has quite a habit of just talking smack with his fingers and his thumbs and whatever. And I think, you know, when people are paying this much money for your product um, and you're trying to tout also its driverless capabilities, I think that you can't just have you can't be having people blindly following that because that that's just not safe. And I'm getting a little bit tired of, of I, I granted this was not a thing from memory that Elon Musk actually tweeted out, but you know, you, you mentioned him talking smack with his fingers and thumbs. Let's not forget about last week's little tweet that the Tesla cyber truck will be able to cross seas. <sighs> oh, well, maybe, well, maybe oh, the removal, maybe the removal of all these sensors makes it more watertight. I don't know, but you know, <laughs> haven't that yet. So, yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Well, uh, the weekend just gone. We saw the debut of the 2023 Ford Mustang supercar at Bathurst, Jack. Yeah, that's right. So not only that, but it was the first ever racing version of um, the seventh generation uh, Mustang that's been revealed. So it's the first ever on track only version, which is pretty cool to see. And I think it looks freaking cool. And um, so as you mentioned, Manny, uh, debuted at Bathurst and um, behind the wheel um, was Dick Johnson, who's an iconic um, race, Australian race driver has a lot of history and actually helps uh, had some uh, hand in the development of this vehicle. Um, so this uh, Mustang supercar is powered by a 5.4 litre a racing version of the Coyote V8 um, from the, the GT road car. So it does have a connection, which is really cool, and uh, produces 447 kilowatts and 600, uh, 650 newton metres. And it's uh, mated to a six-speed sequential transmission with power obviously sent to the rear wheels only, unlike the Grand Tour. Yeah, you can do some some skids in this one if you would like. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's a, this new Mustang is going to be joining the grid uh, in 2023 with the Camaro, uh, which, is, which isn't offered here, but it's going to be um, racing in the Supercars uh, Championship from 2023, the 2023 racing se- uh, season, I uh, should say. So we'll have to see, uh, wait and see what happens there. But um, I quite look uh, like the look of this Mustang. I don't know if we, I don't. From my understanding, we haven't seen what the Camaro is going to look like just yet. But um, I think this one probably looks really look probably look a little bit better in my opinion. Um, but this uh, supercars version of the seventh generation um, Mustang, it's not the first one that we've seen. We've had a whole heap shown off at the the launch, um, and that includes uh, a GT3, a GT4, a NASCAR, as well as a, a drag car version. Um, so there's going to be you've probably seen the, the render image. There's lots of versions of this um, track only uh, Mustang that's going to be competing around the world. So you're probably not going to be able to escape from it. <laughs> and um, yeah, as I mentioned, I think this supercar version probably looks. 
the best out of all of them that have been revealed so far. I'm going to wait, uh, have to wait and see because I think the, the drag uh, version is going to look pretty cool too. But um, what I want to know what you think. Um, what do you think of this new Mustang supercar? Um, I think it looks really cool and how fantastic that um, Ford Performance and Ford Racing and Dick Johnson have been able to do a global debut of the first racing version of the all-new Mustang here in Australia at Bathurst. Like, I think that's a really cool thing that you know, our market, our country and you know, our motorsport heritage has that much significance globally that they've chosen to do that. Uh, it's really cool to see that the Mustang is going to continue in motorsport. I know that it's been um, very successful and very popular here in Australia with the Supercar Series. Obviously, Mustang has quite a big significance in NASCAR and other racing factions around the world. Um, I'm actually really keen to see the GT4 version because um, that's a racing series that almost look like Need for Speed versions of road cars. Yes. <laughs> It'd be really cool to see that. But looking at the um, the rendering with the, with, with the, I think there's, what, seven or five or six or seven cars there that all look a little bit different. Six versions. There we go. Jack's holding up fingers because I obviously can't see even though the screen's right in front of me. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's just so cool to see how different the car looks with different bumpers and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think, I think it's really cool. And considering you can actually – Put an order down on a Mustang and not for a Camaro. I think that probably has a bit more, um, <laughs> bit more bank there too. So yeah, I love it. I think it looks great. And lastly, Jack, Australian consumer watchdog targets greenwashing. What exactly is greenwashing? Yeah, so I'll get to it. So um, the um, the Australian Competition and Consumer Com- uh, Commission, which is the ACCC for short. Sorry, Maddie, I don't mean to cut you off so rudely, but um, I just there's a lot to explain. But um, <laughs> I'll get to it. <laughs> What is this? I'll get to it. Jack has a lot of feelings, guys. I have a lot of opinions on this. Um, Go ahead, Jack. Sorry. Uh, which is a, a consumer um, watchdog, has uh, started a, a, a targeting campaign where it's going to be targeting at least 200 businesses that are falsely, that could be falsely promoting uh, their environmental or green status. Um, so this also includes car brands that are um, included in this, um, this targeting campaign. Um, it started uh, what, it, uh, what it calls uh, two internet sweeps uh, that are designed to identify misleading environmental and sustainability marketing claims and punish perpetrator companies accordingly. Um, so it didn't really go into much depth on what uh, onto what it's doing exactly, but it's likely uh, in terms of car companies, I should say, but it's likely the ACCC's uh, looking at car brands and focusing on the claims around hybrid performance, um, EV range and charging capabilities. So it's wanting to see whether they're um, kind of greenwashing the sense that, oh, we're so green, look how much range our car has, how um, efficient it is, and to see whether those are actually realistic from my mm. understanding. And um, the ACCC um, will publish these findings of the sweeps um, once they've uh, collated them at a later date. We'll have to wait and see what this means and what will happen. But um, what do you expect to arise from this, guys? I think this is a really interesting topic and it's probably something that we've spoken about within the the media side of the automotive um, industry for a really long time because, you know, as journalists, we're constantly covering news on new products, we're reviewing stuff all the time and we're constantly uh, having to explain the differences between different types of hybrid technologies, for example. So, you know, I know between us four, we can clearly distinguish between a mild hybrid um, series of parallel hybrid, a plug-in hybrid, and then, you know, full electric. Um, but even within there, within that group of things, there's lots of different discrepancies and different ways that manufacturers um, make these systems work. And so, you know, I can think of a few examples where um, brands are marketing a mild hybrid that has no sort of electric propulsion at all. It just sort of recuperates energy um, are marketing them as hybrid. So a consumer might be led to believe that it performs like a Toyota-style hybrid where you can actually drive at low speeds with no petrol engine on or you know they're they're acting the range claims for a plug-in hybrid or an electric vehicle are so wildly optimistic that uh, a consumer might get in and have two-thirds of the range for example that they're expecting to have so i think it's i think this is a really important move and um sort of makes me think of when europe moved to the wltp test cycle and you know some other uh, regions around the world sort of tight locked down on their their efficiency testing because you know we think of fuel consumption stickers and 
how, how often are those actually accurate? And that was something that we spoke about a lot maybe five years ago, and that's sort of changed now. And I think it's it's now time to start doing that here because sustainability and environmental friendliness is like a, a current trend and a lot of mm-hmm. brands are wanting to make sure that they're looking like they're eco-conscious and, you know, sustainable and all that kind of thing. But there's there's obviously a lot of parts of you know, battery production and, you know, chemical disposal and all that kind of thing that we don't really speak about yet because we don't really know how it all works. Um, and it's it's definitely important that as a consumer, you're not buying into something that isn't what it says on the tin. And the ACCC doesn't mince words. So I'm no. going to be watching this very closely because I'll be very curious which manufacturers they call out and for what, because those examples you cited, James, are, are definite uh, pet peeves of mine and things that are, you know, do end up deceiving a lot of customers. More can be found at the newslink at carexpert.com.au and we'll chat to you next week. Jack Quick, thank you. Thanks, Bandy. To give us the lowdown on last month's new car sales figures, which we call the facts, we'll now bring in Mike Costello. Hello, Moco. Hello, Mandy. Hello, team. Oh, it appears September was pretty positive. <laughs> yeah, it was. We've been uh, conditioned to expect negative results Pretty much every single month recently, given all of the different headwinds that the industry is facing, but it does look like we're coming out the other side. Um, car sales grew just over 12% for September to 93,555 vehicles. And the most important takeaway from this was the fact that electric cars set their new record market share. So it's the second successive month in succession of solid growth. The market was also up about 17% last month. So As I said before, we really are starting to push through most of the headwinds we faced. Year-to-date sales are down 0.6% over 2021's cumulative tally, so we could even get back to level pegging by the end of the year. Uh, The top three selling vehicles for September, no surprises for number one and number two, Toyota Hilux and Ford Ranger. Pretty much the same thing every month, but number three was very surprising. It was the Tesla Model Y. So the first time... I can recall at least an EV finishing in the top three. Maybe the Model 3 did it once or twice, but certainly not a common thing. And it's the second month of that car being on sale, so obviously no shortage of demand. And EVs overall, with a 7.7% market share in September, um, hit their all-time high watermark, uh, breaking August's previous record. So you can quite clearly see the way the chart's progressing um, and outsold both hybrid and plug-in hybrid cars for the month combined. So a very, very interesting stat there. Guys, hit me up with questions. What can I uh, help you with? What about, um, I suppose we can start with the brands and we pretty much know who's going to be on top of that <laughs> one, but uh, what about the rest of the top 10? Yeah, so Toyota is always uh, number one, just under 15,000 sales, but it was down by 26.5% because it just cannot deliver the vehicles it's selling. It's got an all-time record order book, but massive, massive uh, backlog, waiting lists well over a year on core cars, including RAV4 Hybrid and Land Cruiser. So the change or the, the reduction in sales was a reflection of that. Number two for the month was Kia, up 41%, um, and it actually narrowly ahead of Mazda, which it relegated to third place, which we're not used to seeing, even though Mazda itself was up by 11%. Mitsubishi in fourth, up nearly 50% for the month. Ford in fifth, pretty much entirely down to the new Ranger. Hyundai in sixth, which means that year-to-date, Kia is continuing to stretch that lead over what was once its smaller sibling. Um, Tesla in an impressive seventh space with just under 6,000 Model 3 and Model Y sales combined beat Volkswagen, amazingly enough, into eighth place. MG from China was ninth, Subaru 10th, and knocking on the door and just falling short of its first ever top 10 finish was Great Wall Motor, including the Haval brand. Now, you mentioned that the Model Y was number three, which is obviously a very big deal, but uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to even be in the top 10 next month, does it, Mike? Well, no and yes. So, so the no part of it is, is you, you rightly say that Tesla typically delivers its cars in quarterly batches, um, which means every third month you see this tremendous glut of vehicles lob. But Elon Musk recently said on Twitter, where else, that that strategy moving forward as it scales up is not sustainable. It can't have delivery warehouses you know, on the last day of every quarter, having to deliver three months' worth of cars in one hit. So the company is now working towards a much more steady trickle of deliveries, like we see from every other OEM. So I would expect moving forward that you'll see 
pretty consistent sales from Tesla rather than batches. This also matches what the global chairperson, Robin Denholm, who is actually an Australian. So the only person in the world I know of who could fire Elon Musk is an Australian, which is interesting <laughs> aside. But she, um, she said that Tesla would likely double its Australian car park by year's end, and that would require about 20,000 sales over the second half, which, if you kind of work it all out, suggests a more even flow of vehicles than we've seen previously. So on previous form, yes, we'd expect a much lower number next month, but in reality, it might be something a little different. So where could we expect to see Tesla in in the overall manufacturer sales rankings by the end of the year? Well, I mean, demand is massive. And every time we see the company actually manage to get stock here, and, and to its credit, it's the only car brand so far that's sold any sort of significant number of electric cars in Australia. I mean, pretty much everything else is so ridiculously supply constrained. About 80% of all EV sales this year are Teslas, um, or last month, I should say, were Teslas. Um, So I think it could quite easily be a top 10 brand. The demand's certainly there. It's certainly got tremendous cut through. Mercedes-Benz regularly finishes top 10, and that sells cars at a price point quite similar to Tesla, so there's precedent there. So stock stock being a non-factor coming out of Giga Shanghai, I'd suspect top 10 is invariably doable for that brand that doesn't happen by the way but it could (laughs) um you you mentioned about toyota's uh supply still being you know about a a year until customers can get them what about Mm. uh, other manufacturers like maybe like isuzu and, and others yeah, look, I, so many. Isuzu is also hit terribly. It was down by 10% and finished in 12th place for the month. And uh, alongside the likes of Nissan continues to really struggle with a, with a lack of uh, supply. Um, Toyota is the worst hit purely because it's the biggest brand. It has 20% market share, 200,000 sales a year. Anything Toyota does is going to be magnified on account of its sheer scale. But there are certainly a number of brands that still have massive backlogs. The Korean brands are another perfect example of that. We're not going to see that cleared until 2023. And some manufacturers are still saying that they've got another six months or a year to go before they really start to get proper production going again. And it's quite, you know, varied depending on which brand is which. But they've all got massive issues as far as that's concerned. Uh, Moko, that one particular thing that I found interesting out of last month's VFAX was that um, deliveries of Chinese cars overtook Korea. Um, and so yeah. China was the third biggest supplier of cars in Australia. What is, other than Tesla, because obviously all of our um, Model X, no, not Model X's, Model 3's and Model Y's come from Giga Shanghai at the moment, but how are the mm-hmm. other Chinese brands going? Oh, so I'm really glad you asked that one, Wongi. So one of the biggest trends we've seen in Australian automotive recently has been the massive growth of Chinese manufacturers, um, no less than MG. So MG is a regular top 10 brand now, number one light car in the country, MG3, number one small SUV, MG ZS, and number two electric car, MG ZS EV, which was also the cheapest electric car money can buy for 44990 drive away. That company, which is owned by Seik Motor from Shanghai, is absolutely, you know, screaming up the sales charts. Um, LDV, also part of the Seik Empire, sells utes, vans, uh, is about to launch uh, three electric vehicles, a ute, a van, and a people mover. Um, That company is also really doing quite well. Great Wall Motor, GWM and Haval, another player from China. And Volvo and Polestar. Uh, Volvo is obviously owned by a Chinese company, Geely, and it imports many of its vehicles from China, as does Polestar. So when you combine all those things together, as you correctly said, Wongi, for the first time, China became the third biggest source of imports for a month, uh, ahead of Korea, behind Thailand and Japan. But five years ago, it was almost a non-entity. So it's a pretty amazing uh, amount of growth coming from Chinese-made cars, whether branded from Chinese brands or from other brands just merely built there. I think you mentioned the top three models sold last month. Did Ooh. you mention the top ten? I can indeed. So, awesome. yeah, uh, Hilux Ranger Model Y, one, two, three, as said before. Next in line were Mazda CX-5, Mitsubishi Triton, Isuzu D-Max. So what's that? Four dual-cab utes inside the top six. Wow. That gives you an idea of the sort of cars that Aussies like to buy. Uh, Mitsubishi Outlander in seventh, so a great month from the Outlander. And Toyota RAV4 way down in ninth, and that's really a reflection on lack of supply. We're used to seeing that car in the top three, but you can't deliver vehicles if you don't have them on hand. Um, Kia Sportage in tenth. Sorry, ninth, I should say, and Hyundai i30 in 10th. So that was the first conventional passenger vehicle in the list was in 10th spot. 
a number of mid-sized SUVs and utes absolutely dominating the charts there like we've come to expect. A couple of interesting ones, Tesla Model 3 in 12th place, 1,610. So Tesla, two cars inside the top 12. And uh, the Haval H6 inside the top 20 for the first time with just under 1,300 sales. So that car is really starting to get ahead of steam. What about sales in the states and territories? Yeah, so um, pretty consistent growth. New South Wales was up by just under 21%. Um, I suspect some of that was probably flood replacement vehicles. Um, Mm -hmm. Victoria was up 24%. So the two population centres really did lots of the heavy lifting. The ACT was also up by 68%, but that's a very small contribution. So by and large, most of this growth was driven by what we're seeing in New South Wales and Victoria. Awesome. If you would like to know more, you can shoot us an email, podcast at carexpert.com.au or just shoot Moco a message in the comments in the VFAX story. Thank you, Mike Costello. Always a pleasure, guys. Citroen has got creative and combined a hatch, wagon and crossover all together to make the C5X. Will, my brain is so confused looking at this. Um, But in my eyes, to me, it's actually not a bad looking thing. What do you reckon? No, I think it, it looks good. Um, it did bother me a little bit that um, all the press cars were finished in the exact same shade of grey and, in fact, the oh. only colour available on the palette is blue. It is actually the standard colour, so that's nice, mm. uh, but there's like two greys, one white, one black and a blue, so you kind of expect something a little bit more colourful from Quirky Citroen. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, maybe they felt a little bit burned by the, the cactus not doing too well here, but, look, the C5X, it does seem like something that, kind of doesn't fit into any one category. Um, if you if you look at it um, inside and out, it's it's kind of like a, a more rakish wagon, but it sits a little bit higher than a usual than, than, than your typical wagon, but it doesn't have all-wheel drive. So when I was actually writing this, I'm like, what does it actually compete against? Because there's no one vehicle out there that is exactly kind of conceptually similar. Um, and, you know, Citroen says it kind of combines the, the comfort and status of a sedan, the volume and practicality of a wagon, and the posture and drive position of an SUV. Now, they wouldn't be drawn as to, you know, what rivals it goes up against. And, and it, really, when you think about it, it's a Citroen, so probably uh, it's going to be cross-shopped against nothing else and it's going to be bought uh, <laughs> largely by, by loyal Citroen buyers. But, you know, Citroen does think that it will have appeal to buyers outside of its, you know, its usual kind of um, fold. And they also think that, based on some research that they've seen, that it's going to appeal some to a lot of buyers that are tired of SUVs. So they think that perhaps maybe the tide is turning a little bit there. People have been buying up SUVs and they've realized, you know, I don't need something quite this big and, and ungainly. Maybe I want something maybe a little bit lower to the ground, but I don't want to go too low. Let's not get crazy. Um, I, I want something that has a, a high hip point that can clear, a, you know, a gravel road easily and not bottom out in every second curb. So they've, they've kind of struck a really good balance there. Um, it takes Technically, it actually sits in the large car segment in VFAX, which consists of two other vehicles, the Kia Stinger and the Skoda Superb, Um, neither of which are really what I would consider direct rivals for this. Yeah. Whereabouts does it sit in the Citroen range? So it sits at the very top. So it's priced uh, above the C5 Aircross. Now, we do know that there is an updated C5 Aircross coming later this year. Uh, pricing TBD, but they've said it's been enhanced and, you know, it's now going to be called Sport. And um, so it might see a little bit of a price bump from where it's at. But currently the, the C5X is launching in a single variant. Citroen Australia does that because, you know, it's really not massive sales volumes for Citroen anyway. They have 10 dealers nationwide, um, 10 sales dealers, I should say. You can service a Citroen at, at many more dealers. Um, but one variant uh, with a turbocharged petrol engine priced at 57670 before on-road costs. But there is another one coming. In the second half of 2023, Citroen is going to introduce its first plug-in hybrid in Australia. They've offered plug-in hybrids before, um, but this will be the, the first one that they'll be introducing here. Uh, we don't know how much that'll cost, but considering plug-in hybrids seem to attract a premium of usually, you know, 10 to 15 grand, uh, sometimes more over their equivalent combustion power, purely combustion powered model. Uh, I wouldn't expect that to be a very cheap offering. Uh, so, Will, you, you sort of noted that it doesn't really have any direct competition given it's a high-riding front-wheel drive wagon, but 
what would you say to somebody who is potentially considering something like a Subaru Outback or a Volkswagen Passat all track now obviously those cars are um, all-wheel drive and have more of an adventure focused pitch but what would make you perhaps say or suggest the c5x over a car like that because other than the lack of oil drive conceptually it's sort of in that vein too and uh, when i was writing the review and i was I, I spoke about you know it doesn't really have any kind of direct rivals but if you were to compare it to anything those were the first two vehicles I mentioned. You're absolutely right. Um, why would you get a C5X over an Outback or a Passat Alltrack? Uh, over a Passat, it certainly feels a lot newer and fresher. Um, the Passat's certainly getting on in years. Um, and the C5X has got a really kind of like fresh new look outside and a genuinely really nice interior. We'll come back to that. Over an Outback, though, that's that's a that would be a really tough call for me to say because if you look even the new turbocharged outback um, that'll be coming here soon in top spec trim that's fifty five nine ninety before on road costs so that's actually cheaper than the C five X and you get all wheel drive and you get a more powerful mm. engine I mean is it as quirky inside and out no but that. I'm not sure I could really recommend a C5X over that. Now, that being said, haven't driven the Outback Turbo yet. Maybe it's terrible. Who knows? Um, but <laughs> on on paper, the C5X doesn't quite uh, stack up when it comes to price and specifications. So uh, what's the, the, the Citroen Touch in the cabin, Will? Look, it's actually refreshing um, in that. So I, I'm, I'm a bit of a... A closet Citroen fan. Growing up, I was absolutely obsessed. Not with the DS, which is you know one of the most iconic. You know, oh no, I love it. Look, look, go oh, Before you get the, the pitchfork and torches, I love the Citroen DS. All right, <laughs> calm down. <laughs> but um, when I was a kid, obviously growing up in the nineties, um, the DS was kind of like a you know unfamiliar to me. You know, there's probably one driving around Brisbane somewhere. I was obsessed with the Citroen XM. Um, I had a little Ooh, yes. uh, matchbox version of it that I lost and my brother has never let me live down. Um, but, it, you know, I just, I really, the brand really kind of appealed to me because it was, you know, quirky, this this emphasis on comfort, sometimes kind of unconventional interior styling. Um, now, the C5X is actually not that quirky inside. In fact, I would argue a Peugeot like pretty much any Peugeot interior is quirkier. So for starters with a C5X, you've got a normal sized and normal shaped steering wheel. So if you find that <laughs> off putting about a Peugeot, score one for the Citroen. You actually have physical climate controls. Um, you have a new infotainment system with uh, Citroen connected services. So there's like real time uh, traffic information and real time uh, fuel prices and things like that. And this infotainment system is such a huge step up um, oh, from what's currently in Persia models um, to the point where it actually has a surround view camera and not a in air quotes, surround view camera like Peugeot and Citroën models currently have, which if you've driven over a recent Peugeot or Citroën, you'll know it's terrible. This is actually a good system. The infotainment system works really well. You've got a very simple instrument cluster, but it's, it's customizable with little widgets that you can move around. The layout of the dashboard is, is all pretty straightforward, but there's just little details. The Citroën, it's not completely bland or anything like that. There's little details like the stitching details on the doors are actually little chevrons, just like the Citroen logo. You've got these kind of sweeping wings that come out from the dashboard onto the door. It's kind of like a Peugeot 3008, um, except instead of them being finished in wood, they're finished in this kind of like pale material with this geometric pattern on it. Um, you've got other kind of chevron details in the cabin. So it's it's like... On, on As taken as a whole, it's not a really exciting looking interior, but when you get down into the details, they found little ways to, to make it stand out. And even though Citroen is positioned as more, you know, Stellantis has got 14 brands, so Citroen's supposed to sit below Peugeot in the pecking order. I wouldn't say that the interior overall looks quite as like, you know, luxurious as a typical Peugeot interior because that brand really nails interior design, if not always usability. Um, but when you actually look at the materials they've used, the touch points, it's actually really quite nice and it stacks up pretty well for its price point. It certainly feels um, fresher and, and 
nicer really than say a Passat. So we've touched on all the other stuff on paper, but Will, how does it drive? Well, every second word in the press material that Citroen put out about this car talks about comfort. They don't make any, um, you know, claims to it being a super dynamic, you know, canyon carving machine. Um, and they've they've really drilled down on comfort from the seats, which use like a layer of foam in them that's supposed to be like a mattress topper and they're indeed very comfortable, to the way it rides. So if you are a, you know, rusted on Citroen enthusiast and you're coming out of something like the last C5 with hydropneumatic suspension, look, I'd, I'd say you would probably notice the difference between the old kind of suspension technology that Citroen used and the new suspension technology. But if you're someone who's new to the brand, all you'll really notice is that it's a really comfortable ride. So Citroen uses what they call progressive hydraulic cushions. They're positioned between the springs and the mechanical stops and the suspension. So you've got one uh, cushion for compression one for rebound the whole idea is just to to give you this sublime ride comfort i think they even use the term magic carpet um, somewhere in their press materials i imagine um but really what it comes down to is it rides really comfortably now i would love to take it on some even crappier roads i was in sydney which has pretty rubbish roads especially after all the rain recently so i did take this over a few potholes and it just it it absorbs bumps really well and i just have to say how refreshing it is that and i know citroen's done this before it's not like this is some you know new thing for the brand but it's refreshing to see a brand just focus on comfort because everyone gets lost down the sporting rabbit hole and i mean i love a car with good handling as much as the next person but to actually get into a car that's just been designed to be comfort focused above all else is actually really nice because at the end of the day, most of your driving is going to be straight lines across crappy Australian roads to, you know, your work from your home. And, and that's where the C5X shines. Uh, it's just got a really comfortable ride. So, you know, kudos to Citroen, you know, you lived up to what you're, you know, blathering on about in in the press materials. That's lovely. Um, Now you do have a little bit of extra ride height, but it doesn't make it feel kind of like the center of gravity is too high. It doesn't really feel like an SUV to drive in that respect, but you, you know, you can see uh, a a little bit kind of above uh, your typical station wagon, like a Mazda 6 or or what have you. Uh, But yeah, no all wheel drive at all. Um, now in terms of the rest of the dynamic package, when I first got into the car, the first thing that struck me was how light the steering was like, almost like arcade game light. Ooh, it was just a, light. a little yeah. light. It does, it does kind of weight up as, as you pick up speed, but this is not a car that's really designed for, you know, spirited driving, you know, throwing into corners and whatnot, but to Citroen's credit, they didn't say it was, um, <laughs> and also to the C5X's credit, Body roll is pretty decently well controlled. It doesn't feel kind of too floaty or ponderous, you know, based on our our um, on our test route. It actually it, it feels all, all all around quite comfortable to drive. Um, in terms of power, uh, turbocharged one point six liter four cylinder engine with one hundred and thirty three kilowatts and two hundred and fifty newton meters of torque. So not really that much. Um, it's <laughs> It's not too heavy. It weighs, the tear mass is uh, about 1,400 kilograms. Uh, It feels like it has enough power, but it certainly doesn't feel like it has too much. And when you're looking at uh, rivals, well, you know, what what you can call rivals that it's priced up against, they're all more powerful. You know, Skoda Superb, Sat All Track, Stinger, you know, Mazda 6 Turbo, they're all, they all have more power and more torque. So I think if you were using this as a family vehicle and you did load it up with a full complement of passengers, it might feel like it's a, a taxed a little bit more. Uh, I do wish it has more power. Citroen will obviously introduce a more powerful variant with a plug-in hybrid next year, but that'll be a lot more expensive. And Citroen actually has brought the most powerful petrol engine available in C5X globally. So it's not like they're really holding out on us. <laughs> There's nothing else. There's some diesels we don't get and some less powerful petrols we don't get. So. Hmm. Well, there you go. Uh, it sounds like a very interesting car. You can check out the photos and the review right now at carexpert.com.au. Hello, Scott Collin. Hello, Mandy. You've been adventuring down some dirt roads in the Volkswagen Tiguan all-space adventure. Um, how does the adventure differ over the standard all-space? So the big difference with the adventure is that even though it's the all-space body, which is a bigger version of the Tiguan, 
it's only got five seats. All of the all spaces that have been sold in Australia previously are seven seaters. This one doesn't have the rear seats to free up a massive boot. It's how the Tiguan's sold in the USA. And the reason Volkswagen's actually doing this car is because it's really hard to get stock of the regular five-seat Tiguan at the moment for it from Germany, but it can get this combination from the Mexican factory that builds the allspace. Hmm. I actually love it how you've you've written in your review, has Volkswagen found the Goldilocks zone with the adventure? Um, has it? I think it kind of has, and it's quite a confusing spec because it's a five-seat version of a seven-seat car. It's got the most powerful engine but the smallest wheels you can get, and it's got chunky tyres but sports suspension, and they're all kind of contradictions. But the goal of it ultimately was to create a car that's very comfortable on average urban roads or more comfortable on gravel roads than the average Tiguan or sort of like style-oriented soft rotor is. And Volkswagen really has ticked that box. We spent a lot of time on some really average roads in this car, out the back of Sydney and towards the Hunter Valley, which has just been lashed with rain for the past, call it 12 months now. <laughs> and although it's still not a Land Cruiser or even something like a first-gen Nissan X-Trail, this car definitely can be driven at speed over more average roads than you'd really be able to do in something like a 162 TSI R-Line with its big, pretty wheels. And on gravel, it's got this really interesting combination of what feels like a good degree of compliance, it really floats along nicely, but also really good body control from the sport suspension. So although it's quite a curious mix of bits and pieces, it actually all comes together really nicely. How do we go for price with this? So this is a limited edition. Volkswagen's bringing 1,500 of these into Australia, although theoretically down the track, if it sells out quickly, it could do this again. And I'd actually be quite surprised if we don't see something else like this in the future. Mm. It's priced from 54,990 drive away until the end of 2022, and the list price that was announced is 51,990 before on-road costs. That puts it into a bit of a weird spot. It's $5,000 cheaper than the 162 TSI Elegance, which comes with a more luxurious interior and the same engine, and it's $9,000 cheaper than the 162 TSI R-Line. But then it's also five grand more expensive than the base model Life, which has got the same basic interior and same sort of trim bits and pieces. So this is essentially a Tiguan with quite a basic, strip, not stripped out, but simple interior relative to the top end stuff. And then the most powerful engine and on price, it slots right in between them. So what do you actually miss out on by selecting the Adventure instead of an Elegance or R-Line? So the interior on this really is like the life. You get the base cloth seats, not the more expensive sports ones, but they are heated and they heat up really, really quickly. I press the button and seconds later, my butt was roasting. <laughs> um, that is something that anyone who goes skiing or lives in a cold part of the wilderness will really appreciate. Uh, you get the smaller touchscreen with little volume dials on the side of it. Volkswagen, I thought, was quite funny and said, We've done that because dials are easier to use when you're off-roading. Can you put that in your other cars as well? Oh, yeah, sure, Volkswagen. (laughs) They've also then stuck with the touch controls for the climate control down the bottom. So that logic only extends so far. Um, You do still get a full infotainment navigation system that can go into the dashboard. You still get wireless Apple CarPlay, wireless charging, all that stuff as well. So essentially the car is specced like a base model plus the heated seats and then Buyers get to choose from a range of adventure packs. There's one with snow chains. There's one with floor mats and roof racks. It depends on what your adventure of choice is. There's also some extra stuff like um, extra underbody protection, a more powerful battery and alternator if you want to hook up camping accessories. So there's sort of some choice additions for the sort of person who wants to go soft roading. Scully, obviously the car's called The Adventure. You've talked about how Volkswagen's pitching it. Um, I noticed that in your review you did take it onto some unsealed sections of road. How did it perform and was it noticeably better or worse than other versions of the Tiguan? The main thing that I noticed about this relative to other versions of the Tiguan is that you don't feel worried about breaking its really pretty wheels when the road gets bumpy. <laughs> I love the way the 162 TSI R-Line looks. It's got these massive wheels that could be from a Golf R. I love the way the Elegance looks. But because this car does have chubbier sidewalls and because there's an extra bit of compliance in the way it rides, over washboard gravel surfaces and big nasty potholes, of course you still have to slow down. You're not driving a Ford Ranger Raptor. But it doesn't feel like every bump really crashes into the car as much. And it also feels like you can carry a bit more speed and not worry about 
yeah, damaging a wheel, bursting a tire, that sort of thing. It's just got a little bit more um, depth to what it can do on that front. It also feels really nice and stable, but it doesn't feel sort of skittish or like it's going to get bounced off the road. And one of the things that you sometimes see with quite firmly sprung cars with sport suspension and that sort of thing is up to a certain point, they're fine, but on washboard gravel and that sort of thing, they start to vibrate and judder and skate all over the road. That wasn't the case with this. The Adventure is all-wheel drive only. You can get front-wheel drive elsewhere in the Tiguan range. The 162 is all-wheel drive in other models anyway. Um, it's not a proper four-wheel drive system. You can't manually lock it to 50-50 or, you know, it doesn't have low range. But what I did notice was on gravel roads where you're accelerating out of corners and that sort of thing, it didn't feel front-wheel drive. It wasn't reactive. So when you put your foot down, you kind of just get what you need from it. I'd say it's aimed very much at the sort of person who might back in the day have bought a Nissan X-Trail or an earlier Pathfinder. It's not a proper off-roader, but if you do want to get to muddy campsites or sort of down rural roads and, and gravel sections that are a little bit beyond what you might want to do in a more style-focused SUV, this is kind of what that's aimed at. And it does it still without giving up on the other stuff the Tiguan's good at. So it's still comfortable and quiet in the city. The 162 TSI engine is fantastic. It's really lovely and punchy and You've just got more in reserve on the highway than you do in a lot of other midsize SUVs around this same sort of price with their naturally aspirated engines. Um, it's just a really nice car to drive and it doesn't feel compromised in any way really when you're on the road. But when you go somewhere a little bit rougher, it's just got a little bit of extra headroom. Hmm. Was there anything that you didn't like? Uh, I don't like that it's a limited edition because I actually think that this is the sort of thing that a lot of Australians would like and mm. the sales charts may prove me wrong. But I, I think there's a real space for a car like this and I think more car makers should maybe get on board. I do think there's also maybe a space for a version of the regular Tiguan with this setup with its even shorter wheelbase, um, slightly shorter rear overhang, that sort of thing. It would arguably be a little bit more capable again off-road but Ultimately, the reason that Volkswagen's doing this is because it can't get the regular Tiguan, so I get that that's kind of moot. I think the last thing is, and this is not so much a problem with the all-space adventure as it is the rest of the Tiguan range, but the spec you get on this car in terms of what you get for the safety kit, for the infotainment kit, it keeps changing from year to year. And that means that when you know down the track you, you come to try to buy the next adventure or you try to buy an all-space that's a 2023 model, you might not actually get what you set out for. And I know that's not an adventure problem, but it's an industry problem at the moment and Volkswagen seems to be hit quite hard by it. This is a 2022 car. It gets blind spot monitoring. It gets rear cross traffic. It gets the full gamut of driver assists. Next year's cars don't get blind spot monitoring. I think that's, yeah, not a criticism of the, criticism of the adventure, but it is something to look out for if you're looking for a Tiguan all-space or pretty much any car, but especially a V-Dub at the moment in general. A lot of what makes this car good is the way that it's specced and all the systems that have been included across the Tiguan range since the car launched. The fact you're losing out on some of those for 2023 isn't fantastic. It's not just new car buyers that would be affected either. It's used car buyers because it's it's difficult enough when you when you know exactly what you want as a used car buyer and you're trying to find it, you're like, oh, I know that that variant's got these features. Being a used car buyer five years from now, looking at a five-year-old car, it's just going to be absolute hell because, oh, this car has this and it's the same trim level, but all of a sudden this 2021.5 model doesn't have it. So, yeah. And look, to Volkswagen's credit, it is doing things in batches. So, all of the 2022 cars kind of have the same spec. Theoretically, all the 2023 cars will be missing the same features. It's not like it's changing from month to month, but I think it's something to watch out for just in general because... If you do like the look of the adventure but want to buy an all-space next year, what you're getting is a little bit different. Mm. So if you were buying an all-space, Scott, is this the one that you would go for? It is. I know I'm not the most adventurous man in the world. Uh, I'm not a camper. Uh, you go skiing, I don't... though. You go skiing. I do go that's, stuff. A, that's a thing. I yeah. go skiing. It'll fit a lot of golf clubs in the boot. Uh, yeah. With the rear seats folded, it's actually got the biggest boot of any Volkswagen on sale in Australia at the moment, bigger than even the Touareg. Um but I just I love the way that it, it's got all the punch I'd want from a Volkswagen because I think one of the best things about their range is that you can get really nice turbocharged engines. But it also is going to be comfortable pretty much all the time. It's just got an extra degree of capability to it that I, I find really appealing. I also live in inner Melbourne where there's lots of speed bumps and potholes and stuff. And 
the idea of if you accidentally miss a pothole, being able to hit them and not worry as much about the big wheels is kind of just as beneficial to me as maybe it is to someone who spends a lot of time on gravel tracks. So, yeah, I actually, I think it's a really, really cool spec. Uh, and if I were buying a Tiguan Allspace, it would be the one I think I'd buy. Well, you've given it a car expert rating of 8.1 and you can read the rest of the review at the site. Thank you, Scott Colley. Thanks, Mandy. Another podcast bites the dust. Where's the team off to next week, j uh, So we've got three different events this week, all very, very different vehicles. So um, Tony Crawford is off to Roma to drive the Lamborghini <laughs> Urus Performante. And he'll probably say it worse than that because he actually doesn't have a very good Italian playing. But anyway... <laughs> Um, so I'm looking forward to hearing his thoughts on that. Uh, Scott Colley is driving the new Mercedes-Benz EQB in Melbourne. So really keen to hear about that um, being one of the few seven-seat electric vehicles under $100,000. And I am heading to Sydney this week to drive probably the biggest, most anticipated car of the year, um, the Toyota Corolla Cross. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's a big deal. I mean, it's, it's, I actually, know it is. This it's, could it's, actually be my most read review of the year because so many people have asked about this car and it's such it's competing in such a hotly contested segment and offers more hybridization than any other car in its class. So, you know, given electrification is the um, – the buzzword of today, I could be onto something. So we'll see, we'll see how we go. I might have to get a picture with one of those minty green ones. I'm I'm very excited to to see how the how the Corolla Cross does in the sales charts because we know how popular the Rav Four is. But I think what's interesting about Toyota's current small SUV option, the, the CHR, is that Toyota is usually in the top three of whatever segment it competes in in terms of sales. And the CHR is mid pack. This Corolla Cross, I'm pretty sure, is going to end up being a top three player in that segment. So, get review is going to be read by a lot of people. Awesome. And uh, what cars will be coming up in the garage, Will? So, down in Melbourne, uh, a Havel Jollyon Ultra Hybrid. I actually saw one uh, the other day in Sydney in that weird blue, and it oh. is a very weird blue, a lot weirder <laughs> in person. Um, a Genesis GV60 Performance, uh, Ford Everest Trend, uh, which I'll get a chance to drive up here in Brisbane soon enough. A Nissan Z, Nissan Z, um, Coupe with the Auto. Um, a Nissan Navara SL Warrior, which I know we just had one up here in Brisbane because Boaz was driving that around. And I will be popping out of an EV6 uh, into a Kia Sorento GT Line Hybrid. Um, I've also got a Mitsubishi Outlander Fev up here. So a very... Lots of electrified stuff. Mm, it's a way that everything is going at the moment for sure. William Stopford and James Wong, thank you so much. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, Mandy.